I think a really important part of the journey when deciding to be an assistant is narrowing down editors that would nurture that goal. And I think that's a huge, huge component of, of having the career you want is recognizing opportunities that are a good fit for you and some that just may not be. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I'm here today with television editor Mark Wiltshire, whose recent credits include Bel Air, Wu-Tang and American Saga, as well as Star. Mark, you were also an AE and worked alongside Susan Vale, who, by the way, shameless self-promotion, is a fellow podcast guest on the show and one of my favorite people in the industry. You worked alongside Susan on the first season of the very prestigious award-winning HBO's Hacks. And most importantly, the reason that you're here today is you're a very highly valued member of the Optimizer community. So, Mark, it has been a long time coming, but I knew the day would come when we would be telling your story on the show. So here we are. Zach, it is like a bucket list item to be here. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Uh, and you have really planted your flag in our Winds channel. You kind of snuck in under the radar because I've got a, a lot of people that I've worked with in small group classes that I've worked with privately that really dig into the program and they're willing to play the long game and get results. But Mark just kind of snuck in under the radar and said, I'm just I'm going to do some of the, the self-guided classes and use some of these resources and just occasionally pop into office hours. And then all of a sudden you said, hey, guys, out of my way, I'm just going to take over the Winds channel for a while. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about how you made a lot of that happen because you really kind of, you know, set the, the community on fire and you've really made some major strides 
uh, in your career over the last few years. Uh, but you've also gone through a lot of challenges and a lot of struggles to get where you are. And I want to talk about both of those things. Uh, one of those things that I, you may not even realize or know that much about um, is that even before we really connected, I knew a lot about your career journey already because we've worked with a lot of the same people. Um, so I, you know, talked uh, about uh, the process of you working with Joe Leonard more than once. I know that you worked on uh, Star with my former assistant turned editor, uh, Natalie Boshan. Um, so I, I actually kind of knew of you and knew of your journey and a lot of those challenges before we ever connected. So uh, I was very excited when I finally saw your name on the roster. It's like, oh, cool. Um, I get to be a little part of, of Mark's journey. So um, so having, having said all of that, I know that you've now become quite the, the seasoned veteran of doing the podcast circuit. But we're probably not going to talk too much today about the actual shows or the creative process. And I'll make sure that we uh, put some links in the show notes to some of the other really great shows that you've done talking about the craft. Today, we're going to talk about the journey. So I would love to know, if we're, if we're going to start from the beginning, what would you consider the start of Mark Wiltshire's origin story from making the transition from Canadian citizen to big-time Hollywood television editor? <laughs> well, thank you for that amazing introduction. Um, I mean, just let me start by saying that uh, it's been like an absolute pleasure to be part of the community. Uh, likewise, I've known about you for many years before even joining and, um, you know, always had an interest in in your podcast and in your your uh, your courses, everything that you were offering through Optimize Yourself. And so it was a no brainer once they got to the right place where I felt like, OK, I need some extra uh, guidance in in my specific goals, and I knew exactly where to go. You know, so I, I'm very grateful for your your community even before I joined it. But um, what what was shocking was actually yeah, like once I joined, just how much more valuable it was than I even had imagined. Um, my journey was, you know, somewhat unconventional, I guess, um, compared to an American citizen trying to move out here. Uh, but especially because you know I. Well, let me let me go back to the beginning. I, I was obsessed with movie making since I was like eight years old. I kind of knew I wanted to work in that world in some capacity. And initially, I thought I'd be an actor and then realized that you can't make a living as an actor. So maybe that's not the best approach. Maybe if I'm a director, I can put myself in movies and then I can still do the acting thing. And, um, you know, through through various short films and uh, lots of hard work and going to film school and, and you know, making films as a director. I, I learned over and over again uh, about failure. And um, maybe I'm not the greatest director that's ever come out of film school. But what I learned through those projects was I might be a good editor because I know how to like piece together something out of a pile of crap that I, you know, thought was something. And that's that's sort of how my journey started uh, in the editing world was just recognizing that there was there was something I had I had a, I had a skill set of looking at footage and just like when I was a kid building Lego blocks I was like I, I have an idea of what we need to do here and so I can just piece this in a different way and get the result that I want. So yeah, I mean um, uh, the, the the film school that I went to, you know, so I left um, Canada to actually go to Singapore and live there for four years because NYU had opened up a brand new graduate film school in Singapore. And uh, long story short, I I was dating someone who broke my heart at the airport in Hong Kong. 
And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to, she was going back to Canada and I decided, you know what, I'm going to stay here in Asia and be as far away from that person as possible and go to this film school and took a leap of faith because I knew inherently living in Singapore is not going to lead to my dream job of working in Hollywood as an editor or as a filmmaker or anything. Um, but I sort of figured, when else am I going to go have that experience living in Asia? So I did that. And the beautiful thing about it is that I ultimately did, you know, uh, move to Hollywood um, and had no other contacts other than those people that I had spent four years with in this little tiny island in the middle of Southeast Asia. So we were very, very close and helped each other out when we landed in L.A. And that was kind of the beginning of my my journey as an editor was through this very odd roundabout experience of going to live in Asia for four years. And ironically, that's where I got my first credit as a as an editor on a feature film, was working on a documentary about uh, graffiti art uh, all over Southeast Asia. I handled the Singapore section of it, which was a very unusual section because Singapore is notorious for not having any graffiti art. And so... That kind of was a very interesting uh, entry point into editing documentaries. I went back to Canada, did that a little bit before finally landing in L.A. But um, that <laughs> that documentary was very music heavy and it just led to a bunch of music based projects. And so I often think if I hadn't lived in Singapore, maybe I wouldn't have you know been on this journey of editing music based uh, projects. Um, so. Yeah, I, I I basically uh, moved out to LA finally when I got a visa and was able to start my career. And, um, you know, I, I knew right away I had to start as, as, as an assistant. Um, just kind of accepted that was going to be the, the easiest route for me to get to the editor chair based on all the, you know, uh, interviews I had listened to and, and what I had read. And so, uh, but, you know, I wasn't a young guy either. I was a little bit concerned about ageism and, and maybe I wouldn't be considered a good uh, candidate with so little experience at, uh, you know, being in my early 30s already. Um, that was incorrect. It turns out that, uh, you know, age is less important as personality and drive and passion and wanting to do the right thing. So how I ended up meeting Joe is such an interesting uh, leap of, uh, or turn of faith it was um at an nyu screening and uh prior to that so i had tried to reach joe leonard for nearly a year i had been emailing him doing the cold outreach uh he was on a list of nyu mentors that lived in la and they were editors and i was like well there's like three of these people he's one of them you know i, I emailed all of them um didn't get any response from anybody uh and and through another contact, he also tried to connect me to this editor he knew who was working on Empire. It turned out to be Joe Leonard. I was like, I'm trying to contact this guy already. Perfect. Okay, so I've got you know a couple of ways in and still nothing. Eight months later, after that first email, I get this email from him. Hey, I'm so sorry. I've been buried in work. I'm finally coming up for some air. I'd love to meet you. Are you going to go to this NYU screening next week? I'm going to be there. And I said, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a short film that's going to be playing at that screening, actually. And sure enough, he showed up, texted me when he got there. He says, I'm sitting in the back. I'll see you after the show. Uh, screening went great. Uh, I ended up winning the editing award for that film. 
Uh, so that was a nice, you know, entry point into meeting this person. But the real kicker was he came to me after the screening and said, Mark, this is insane. Your film was so good and so well edited. But beyond that, it's almost identical in terms of story to the pilot that I just cut. And I need an assistant on this pilot who can cut because I, I really want to like mentor and, and bring someone in who, who can do this stuff. You've proven you can do it. You've got the music performance. You've got, you know, dramatic acting. This is dynamite. Do you want to be my assistant? We just met, like literally that moment. But it was, again, it's all about like, luck is a is a combination of opportunity and and you know being in the right place at the right time right and uh it just worked out so beautifully um but it also helped that i had been preparing myself to be an assistant and i had been doing the research of what that would entail and so when i finally met this guy i had the confidence to say yeah i could do this i can absolutely do this and i'm going to kill it and i'm going to do a good job and uh you know i was very apprehensive my first day because I came in when they had already started and I had no idea what a turnover meant. And they were sending the cut out to the studio network that night. And Joe was going out to some party. So he had to leave early and just left me the keys to the car and said, okay, figure it out. Uh, yeah, that was the scariest day of my life. I'm like, I'm going to get fired on my first job in Hollywood. This is terrible. But, uh, you know, luckily I was uh, willing to be humble and go talk to other assistants and say, I don't know what I'm doing here. Please save me and show me what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, you know, I, I've managed to fake it until I made it eventually. Uh, you know, no one, no one ever thought I couldn't do it. And that was the nice thing, but it was a lot of pretending to know what I'm doing and figuring it out as I go. But, uh, yeah, that was sort of the, the, the genesis of my journey. I love getting it. into uh it. Given, given how much you and I have already worked together and talked, I'm fascinated by the fact that I knew almost none of that. Um, that is such, such an amazing story. I didn't know about the, you know, going to film school in Asia and living in Singapore. And I, I knew very little of that story. So I was uh, just as enthralled and sucked in as I'm sure as anybody else was. Because um, when, when I hear from uh, a lot of prospective students or just people that I talked to in the industry, Almost everybody says the same thing at the beginning of their story. Well, my story is a little bit unconventional and it's a little <laughs> bit all over the place. And my response is everybody's story is unconventional and all over the place because we all have our own unique paths and we all go in all these different directions. Um, but yours actually is an unconventional version of the unconventional story, uh, which I love because it's it's one thing to come from a different country from Canada to break into the industry. But you took a very circuitous route to decide I'm going to come from Canada to Hollywood via Singapore. Mm -hmm. So I would say you're probably the first person that I've ever met that has uh, that accreditation on their resume. Um, and the, the the part that I want to dig into uh, next is you said something very, very specific that really, uh, really keyed into the reason that we're here today. And you said, I decided to become an assistant because that seemed to be, number one, the easiest approach. And number two, what everybody told me I was supposed to do. And this is actually a two-part series that I'm doing with two different students in the program, one of whom did the exact opposite, where everybody told her that you have to become an assistant, you have to quote-unquote take a step back, and I hate it when people say that, but it just seems like it's such an absolute obvious piece of advice that everybody says, well, how do I break into scripted as an editor? You have to become an assistant. And I have just adamantly and categorically said that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not the most common path. 
And it doesn't mean that it isn't the easiest path, but it isn't the only path. So I wanted to make sure that in talking about Melinda's own version of an unconventional path, we now talk about yours, which seems like the conventional one, but still is a totally unconventional one. So let's go back to that point where you first come to the industry. You already have a credit as an editor where you're working in the documentary space. And it doesn't surprise me that you're doing something that's related to where you came from because that was the experience that you already had. That's where you had interests and transferable skills and you could start to gain some of that experience that you didn't have. But was there ever a point at which where you asked yourself, do I even want to go the assistant route? And you did it because you had to versus I actually think this is the best fit for me. Absolutely. It was not an easy decision because again, like I mentioned, you know, I was 32, I think when I moved to LA and had been cutting, you know, for a couple of years at that point in Canada and in Asia. I mean, that's all I was doing in my time in film school in Asia was cutting all these short films and, you know, any big project that, that I got an opportunity to be involved in, I was, I was doing all that stuff. And so the notion of like, yeah, sure enough, like taking a step back, it seemed like, oh man, is this, does that mean I'm going to be held back for 10 years? And then by then I'm 40 and am I even going to be cutting at all? Because then I'll be too old to be considered. And, you know, all these doubts and concerns were kind of flooding over my, my mind. Um, what I think triggered me to make the decision for the path that I made was, I think, to, you know, like you pointed out, it, it is a simpler path. Um, I think people are more likely to hire you as an assistant. And then from there, you know, if you do everything right, and if luck comes in, all these things happen, you know, maybe you'll be able to cut. Um, but I also knew enough about the TV landscape versus feature films. And understanding that in TV, you can move up much faster than you can in a feature film world. So that was a kind of probably like my conscious strategy was, okay, I can, I'm willing to be an assistant knowing that odds are if I, if I play my cards right and if I work really hard, I can be cutting in five years, maybe, you know, that was, that was the hope. That was sort of the five-year plan, if you will, was I thought to myself, okay, I'll give this a shot. Worst case scenario. I can probably move back to Canada and edit documentaries and be an editor and, or, you know, stay here and edit something. Either way, I knew I had a skill, so I wasn't too worried about doing the work, but I, I just knew what I wanted to do was work on large projects, big scale projects, be them TV that I was really inspired by or, or, uh, or features. And uh, I was willing to play the long game to get there. You know, I, I, I also thought, there's a lot you can learn about editing without a lot of the pressure when you're an assistant and having not lived here, not, you know, a lot of people go to film school in LA and so you're exposed to a lot of panels or, or access to people who can teach you things. I didn't really get that in Singapore. That was, it was such a different industry in Asia and, and NYU is very much like an independent filmmaker type of education. So you're really just like going out there and figuring things out. Um, so I, all that to say, I didn't really have the the ground base understanding of what editing feature films or, you know, high scale television meant, any television for that matter. And so I figured, you know, I'll probably be more valuable as an editor if I learn a little bit under somebody first. And then I can, you know, go in more confidently and say, I actually know how all this works. I didn't know how any of it worked even as an assistant, right? I was like, oh, am I going to get fired, right? That was my concern on day one. So I, I figured quickly, okay, you know what? I have so much to learn 
that it's not doesn't even feel like a step down because this is already so much of a step up from any other project I've worked on. And knowing that I had skills and, you know, again, I mean, I got lucky meeting an editor who was willing to hire an assistant who wants to cut and he wanted to give me opportunities to cut. And that was a big two-way road for me, knowing that even if it's not my name on the on the credits, that I get to play, that I get to have an opportunity to actually try things and get some feedback and learn how to cut TV. It was an, a no-brainer as a as a way to, to start my career. Um, but that was also, I think, a really important part of the journey when deciding to be an assistant is narrowing down editors that would nurture that goal. And I think that's a huge, huge component of, of having the career you want is recognizing opportunities that are a good fit for you and some that just may not be. And I had uh, interviewed for big feature films as a second assistant and didn't get the job. And I think it would have been a cool experience. But looking back on that now, I realized I wouldn't have really learned much about the editing of the project because I would have been so busy just scripting, you know, uh, the, the footage. Um, and and I knew that opportunity would not lead to any cutting at all. So I think just knowing what you want to be doing and where you're at 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 any given point is important in like recognizing what opportunities are going to be a lateral move or if it is going to be a move up, even if it isn't as an assistant. That's exactly what it was for me working at a, as an assistant for Joe. He gave me a lot of opportunities to cut and make mistakes, you know, or you know, learn how to cut a certain style without the pressure of uh, failing. And um, I think that's that's important when you're starting out is that you want to start on the right foot and you want to make sure you're building relationships with producers and showrunners that they recognize your contribution without seeing the flaws in that <laughs> in those early days. Yeah, so the, there's a whole lot that I want to break down in here that I think is going to be tremendously valuable. And I think you can you can speak to the nuances of a lot of very common questions uh, and give people answers that they just frankly can't get from most other people. So I think that um, the, the stuff that I want to dig into next, I think, is going to be just a, a variety of gold nuggets for anybody that's asking the question, is going the assistant route the right fit or not? And I want to also add that caveat that this is not the question, do I have to be an assistant editor to be an editor? This can apply to so many different crafts, whether it's, should I be a writer's assistant or a composer's assistant or a first AD, whatever it might be. Um, I think that the, the challenges inherent in post-production and the editing path are similar to very many others, which is that um, you, you've, thrown a, you've thrown around the word luck several times now. And I think you, you already know that you're digging yourself a little bit of a hole with the way that I feel about the, the term luck. And it's not to say that luck doesn't exist. But when you had said, well, I certainly was lucky that I ran into this editor and this editor gave me the opportunity to be his assistant. Well, yeah, that's because you spent a year of starting the, the relationship via cold outreach. And even though the timing was bad, you were still making an impression. And I don't think that if you had just showed up at that film festival cold and you bumped into Joe, he would have said the same thing. So I don't think you, you got nearly as lucky as you might say. And your, your head shaking says that you agree with that. Um, but I think it's, that it's, the, a, it's a taboo word to use luck. And, and I'm, I'm not using it uh, appropriately here. Well, let, let right. me say this. I don't believe it's a taboo word. I believe that the word luck is an excuse for people to use that aren't achieving the goals that they want to achieve. Everybody else is just getting lucky and I'm unlucky. So it's not that luck doesn't exist. I just think that we spend far too much of our energy using as an excuse 
when things are going poorly. And I think that your luck was a lot of hard work that met with the right timing and the right opportunity. And the part that I want to dig into that I think is so valuable is not this idea of, well, if I'm an assistant editor for five years, I'm going to move into the editor's chair because there's no guarantee of that whatsoever. And what I think you noticed and were very astutely recognizing is that working as Joe Leonard's assistant editor was a path to editing because of how he was willing to mentor you and give you the opportunity to cut. But what I want to talk about is just one of the areas that I'm so frustrated by the way that our industry has devolved, not evolved, but devolved, is the fact that you can be an assistant editor your entire career. And you can be great at what you do as an assistant editor and none of what you do makes you a better editor because it's become so technical and so data driven and so much about management and organization and turnovers and visual effects lists. So you can be immensely good and competent at your job and nothing that you're doing makes you a better editor. So your choice of working with somebody that was going to shepherd the creative side of things is a huge portion of this. So talk to me a little bit more about once you were actually in the assistant editor's chair, realizing that I've got years ahead of me of doing a bunch of jobs and tasks and projects that I frankly have probably no interest in doing. And I need to find some way to get value out of this towards the editor's chair, because this is a component I think that so many people miss. They assume I'm an assistant editor for X number of years, and I am entitled to the editor's chair. Not even remotely true. Not remotely true. And in fact, um, it, what can happen is you you spend too much time as an assistant that you end up uh, not being seen as an editor at all. And that's the biggest danger, because if you know you are an editor at heart and that's what you've been doing on shorts or whatever projects. And now, you know, you, like me, you're trying to use this opportunity as an assistant to learn and move up in the industry. Um, you really got to be trigger fo- like super hyper focused on the goal, the ultimate goal of being in that editing chair. And how are you going to do that? Because it is so easy. And I've seen a lot of people get stuck in just one job after another as an assistant, because um, we get very comfortable and complacent. And, you know, we all need to work. And so you you start putting money ahead of uh, the right show or the right opportunities. Um, But it's also it is a matter of Reaching out to the right people as well. I knew that Joe was going to be someone, even just as on a mentor level, someone who could guide me and and figure out how to get to my goals. And I think that's uh, one of the biggest components is recognizing what opportunities are more likely to give you the knowledge and the experience that you want. But beyond that, I mean, it wasn't like it was just because I had a great editor who was very nurturing. You know, it was a lot of hard work of proving myself. So cutting recaps, you know, uh, I was cutting every single recap, not only for my episodes, other assistants didn't want to do it or didn't have the same ambitions to become editors. I'd volunteer. I'd be like, I'll cut it. I'll cut that recap. No problem. Give it to me. Um, if there was a blooper reel to be cut, I volunteered right away. I raised my hand and said, I will absolutely do this. I want to do this. So I just used any opportunity I had to show that I wanted to cut, not just to Joe. Joe knew it was about the producers. It was about the showrunner. Beyond that enthusiasm, you know, this is pre-pandemic. So we were working in offices and I was always the last one to leave. And I was often the first one to be there. 
And when I would leave, the showrunner would still be in her office writing and she would see me and I would say goodnight and she would recognize it's 9 p.m. and Mark is still here. Why is he here? He doesn't need to be here. But I was because I wanted to, you know, cut some scenes, do whatever extracurricular work I could do. Uh, And it wasn't like I was doing it intentionally to get her attention, but I did eventually realize like, oh, she must be recognizing that I'm here, you know, so this is probably worth it. It's all calculated in that sense of like, is this all worth my time and energy? But it was also, you know, the the post-producer would absolutely recognize my contribution and my extra work. But that extra effort, I knew it was for that purpose of proving myself to everyone around me that I am not only hardworking, but I'm I've got something to offer, that I have value in my editing. And making sure that they knew what I had cut, or if I, if I had cut a scene, uh, I mean, I got lucky as well. Uh, and there's that word again. Um, you know, working with Joe did give me uh, some unique opportunities because he was very close with Lee Daniels, who was the creator of Star, and so he had a little bit of sway as far as asking um, the producers to give me a co-edit credit. So on the season finale of season one, the first season of you know, scripted TV I'm, I'm working on. I, I got a co-edit credit on that episode. And then season two came along and same thing happened a couple of times. So I'm very grateful that, you know, he was willing to go to bat for me um, and actually get that that credit that, that you know, that, that's what we all really need to be seen as editors. And so, but it, again, it didn't happen in a bottle. I was putting in the work. I was putting in the weekends, doing like a lot of free labor uh, in hindsight, I, I, I certainly couldn't do it now with a child. It was lucky that I was, you know, just fresh off the boat and trying to do anything I can to to make it in America. Right. That was the American dream. So I I accepted the fact that I might have to work way beyond basic hours um, in order to achieve that that just presentation of myself. But it did pay off. You know, like he saw it and he was willing to go to bat for me. And then producers saw it as well and so i think if you're if you're surrounded by people that you believe have your best interests or or who you know believe in in helping others and nurturing i do strongly believe showing hard work and doing the hard work will pay off i think it's really easy to say ah you know no one's even going to notice i don't want to work that hard i don't want to like work the weekends i'd rather have a life i get it i i i think work life balance is one of the most important things in our industry. But at the same time, I think when you're starting out, you have to accept that no matter what industry you're even in, no matter what position you're in, if you decided I'm going to go straight into editing from, you know, unscripted, I'm going to just make it as an editor and scripted, you can probably do it, but it doesn't change the fact that you're going to have to work really, really hard, way harder than people that have been doing it for 10 years, just to earn the right to, you know, call yourself that and and say, I I'm better than anyone else on your resume list. I'm the one you're going to want to hire. And this is why. And these people will attest to that. So you do need to work really hard. And and, and I I believe that's that was the secret sauce for me getting the, the bump ups, the opportunities I got. My sincerest apologies for the interruption. But if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. 
Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo-driven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the Topo Mat. The Topo Mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. Yeah, so the the basically what you're talking about are the, these two concepts that are thrown around all the time, which are that you have to prove yourself and you've got to pay your dues. And both of these things are in direct opposition to this idea of work-life balance, which clearly I'm a fan of, you know, the the general concept of work-life balance and have talked many times about how I think it's not necessarily even the the term or the ideal that we should be working towards. Um, that's a conversation for, you know, another TED Talk and another uh, soapbox <laughs> that I won't go on to right now. Um, but the, there is no denying it doesn't matter what craft, what sector of the industry or even what industry. There's a period where you have to prove your value and you're going to have to pay your dues. But the line that I always talk about not crossing is there's a difference between, like you said, I'm basically just highlighting and packaging what you've already mentioned. There's a difference between I'm proving myself around people that recognize it and that value it and that respect me versus paying my dues means I have to let people exploit me and take advantage of me and force me to do things that are well beyond any boundary that I set or communicated. And it sounds like probably for the most part, and I've, I've worked on lead annual shows and I know how high profile and how high stress and how crazy that environment can be in the, the network world. Uh, but at the end of the day, I feel that when you're in that position where you have to really prove yourself, as long as people recognize it, it doesn't make you any less tired or exhausted, but it's a huge difference between I'm wiped out, but that was worth it versus I am totally burned out because they're exploiting me and take it, taking advantage of me. And why am I even here? So it sounds like a really big component of how you were able to prove yourself and leverage that was simply the people that you were surrounded with. And I should mention that I spent at least 10 years being exploited and working my butt off on things that never paid off, you know? So it wasn't like I just got that idea when I came here and, and started doing it. No, it was like, okay, I understand. I accept that that's a fact. But by the time I did work on Star, worked with Joe, uh, I had already kind of figured out like 
how to determine the difference between someone who is going to actually help your career and someone who's just exploiting you. Uh, I hated, you know, getting uh, job postings about like great exposure, you know, or like work for free and it'll be a great opportunity. It's like those never turn out to be a great opportunity. Um, in fact, that's like almost a golden rule now is like if you're not even going to pay someone lunch or or give them any kind of return for their hard work, they're probably not that invested in you to begin with. And they're not going to do very much for you. Um, and that was a, like a long, hard road to, to come to that realization. So yes, I think um, it was definitely the right uh, combination. When I when I joined Joe and, and met the team and saw the potential of, you know, these people's really care about making a good product and also having a good work culture. That's that was a big motivating factor too. Okay, you know what? This these people are people I want to be around for years and years, and I have mm-hmm. been. I mean, I'm still very close friends with a lot of those same people. We have dinners together. We don't even work together, and we wish we did. So it was a great, you know, um, culture. And I think um, that's 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 probably the most important thing as far as the combination of your hard work and your willingness to to bring your all. That's the other component is making sure that it, it is going to be recognized and, and pay off. So from the, the first morning that you're in the assistant editor's chair and they say, we need you to do turnovers and exports and I'll see you tomorrow. Let me know how it goes. From that day to the day where you sat in the editor's chair as an editor, no longer as a co-editor or helping out, but where you were an actual editor. What was the time span between those two moments? Two full seasons of Star. So roughly two years, I guess. With the hiatuses, so you know, the time uh, an, off an accelerated so. version of your five-year plan. Yeah, I mean that's a, I, even when I got that first co-edit credit, I certainly didn't expect that to happen in my first year working in scripted television. Um, that was actually a little bit stressful because after that happened, it was the season finale. I started feeling this pressure: should I just be going after editing jobs now? That became the question. And then, luckily, you know, smartly, I decided, you know what? Um, there's plenty still to learn, you know. There's still plenty of of proof I got to put in my pudding. Um, so yeah, I, I waited um, and and did season two. But I, you know, yeah, I think by by the time I was doing season two, and I got a couple more co-edit credits, I had decided either I'm going to go be an assistant on another show and learn from more people because I I kind of had one editor that had shepherded me in this TV world. Um, or, you know, I'm going to try to really get bumped up. And I mean, the thing is I got bumped up and I got the season three spot because some editors weren't coming back and I knew the show cause I had worked on it since the pilot. So I had this added advantage coming in. It wasn't like any of us going on to a, a new to us show, even if it's second season, third season, if it's new to you, you have a lot to figure out and, and learn. I didn't have to have that runway. I, I'd been doing it. I knew the show like the back of my hand. I understood all of the tricks. So I w- I had a pretty good, successful uh, run in that season. And I thought, okay, here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. And then the show got canceled after season three. And uh, that's when I realized like, oh, you know what? It's not that easy to just keep cutting and get hired by other people who've never worked with you when you have one show under your belt. They always and, say and the second one's the hardest. The second you, one's way harder than the first. And nobody ever believes harder. it until they're there. Yeah. But, but also, 
for better or worse, I mean, I don't know how much it really factors in, but the fact that I had come from being an assistant on that show to getting bumped up, it also kind of lowers the value of it in the eyes of someone who doesn't know you because they're sort of like, well, okay. I mean, they already knew you. So you didn't, you didn't just like blow them away with some other project. Like you earned your way up the the ranks. We don't really want to like take a, a risk, you know? So getting that second spot was tricky. And um, yeah, it was kind of like a harrowing experience that summer realizing I may not get another editing job. And I have, and at that point I had a, a, a one-year-old child, you know? So there was no more like, oh, it's all good. I'll just like wait it out and I'll hustle and I'll try to, you know, no, I was like, I need a job. And I also realized I had worked on one show. You know, I, I didn't I didn't feel like I knew enough at that point where I could jump into any show cold and and kill it and be and be great. Maybe I could have, maybe it was a confidence thing, but a part of me just sort of at that point felt like I still have a lot to learn. And also knowing that I, I I wanted to work on really high end HBO level shows, you know, and I'm like, I'm not going to get that with one credit on, you know, with, with so little experience. And, and more importantly, I had no network because I only knew the people that I had worked with for three years. And that's a huge part of getting recommended for a job is people know you, you know, and I didn't know enough people. And so... I just quickly accepted, okay, you know what? I'm just going to like find a, another great editor who's going to be, you know, nurturing and, and mentoring and, and just do, do the assistant thing again. And I accepted to take that step back down, you know, uh, in quotes. And luckily it was a very positive experience. I mean, actually it's, it's many thanks to Susan Vale, who, who had already been a mentor to me at that point. I had met her at an event and, and she quickly volunteered herself to be my mentor um, when I got bumped up, basically, like the day I found out I got bumped up on Star, I met Susan Vale and told her about that because we had met once casually. And she right away spent 30 minutes talking to me, giving me unsolicited advice that changed my life forever. And I, and she said, with sincerity, contact me, stay in touch with me, like, let me know what's going on. I want to help you. And so she held herself to that. And when I was in this position, she's helped me find that editor. She says, I can't hire you. I don't, I, I have someone right now, but I'm going to look around. She connected me with Philip Harrison, who was a brilliant editor. And he was going to do a limited series with Kate Mara called The Teacher. That's a whole side story. Coincidentally, I dated a girl who was roommates with the filmmaker. And she had made her first feature called The Teacher 10 years prior, which I had seen. So when I meet Philip, I'm like, I've seen this movie already. I know exactly the filmmaker. I understand her style. I understand what she's doing. The TV show is just an adaptation of the film that she had made. So I already had a lot like in, in the game, you know, and I was excited about it. I liked that movie. And so the interview went really well and he hired me right away. And uh, I did that for him. And then when that was wrapping up, I called Susan. That was, that was a great experience. I learned a lot. I was able to expand my network. Um, not a whole lot of cutting opportunities because of the the nature of the show, but nonetheless, very valuable experience as an assistant to learn how a very different type of show operates with very different. It was one filmmaker for the entire series. It was just a very different approach from working on network TV on Star. This was a Hulu series, you know. And so I learned a lot. And when that wrapped up, I called Susan to say thank you again and just to update her on how it all went. 
And that day, she happened to have gone to an interview and she was just telling me about it. And in the conversation, she was like, you know, it's this music show. I've never really done that. Hold on a second. You've done that. You could help me figure this out. Wait a minute. Do you want to be my assistant? And just like that, she she offered me the job when my job was ending. And I was like, this is amazing. Yes. And not only that, she was like, it's a pilot. And if it goes, I'm going to tell them to hire you to be the editor. And it's just going to be great. And everything's going to work out amazing. And I was like, boom, boom, boom. This is all working. My life is going great. So we plan for that. We prepare for it. The job's going to start in March 2020. It's going to be amazing. We are going to have an awesome time. Two days before the job starts, everything gets shut down. And none of us have a job for, what, nine months or something. But luckily for me, when you know the job never went away, pandemic was winding down, they were starting to pick up production. And... You know, she called me and said, yeah, it looks like it's going to happen. We're going to start in December. I was like, awesome, great. I need a job. This is perfect. And and the same plan, you know, is in place. You know, we're hopefully going to bump you up and all that. And then two weeks before the job started, she says, I just got a call. They're offering me a show with Gene Smart. It's this comedy. And I've never heard of it. And I don't know anything much about it. Do you want to do it? It's for HBO. And I was like, yeah. Let's do it. I don't care. And she was like, I'm not going to be able to give you the, the same kind of bump up opportunity maybe, but uh, you know, I'll definitely give you stuff to cut and it'll be, you know, very, very, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. And I said, honestly, I don't even care. Like that's the kind of thing I love Gene smart and I just want to do HBO type content. So it sounds like a great opportunity. And that was hex. And so that ended up being an amazing journey uh, where once again, I was but to the test, I was given a lot of opportunity to cut, to prove myself. Uh, we were working remote for the first time, and that was a challenge for everyone, the filmmakers especially. And But it was very advantageous to me in the sense that due to the nature of the pandemic shooting, they were shooting six days a week. We had to work six days a week for the entire duration of the run. And in order to not burn out, Susan needed me to like help out, you know, and so and also there were three showrunners and they wanted to work a lot and fast in multiple different Zoom rooms. And so they just said, can we just work with Mark for the day in one room and we'll work with you in a different room? And so I got a lot of opportunity to end up cutting with them, to work with them closely. And they saw, you know, how hard I was working and what I was able to contribute. And, um, you know, they even sent me a plaque from the Academy after they won an Emmy thanking me, which is like the nicest wow. thing any employer has ever done. Yeah, they that's they, pretty impressive that they're recognizing a quote unquote assistant for that effort. That's yeah. pretty, un, pretty, pretty unusual. Very unusual. You very sure are a un, lucky uh, guy, Mark. Man, I know, you're right? Just it's such just a luck. lucky guy. Just luck, guys. That's all it is. Just luck. No, it was hard work. I mean, that, that show burned us both out, but. I think ultimately we were very proud of it, obviously. You know, even a week until it aired, no one had talked about it. And we were like, oh my God, is this thing just going to get buried in the algorithm and no one's going to ever know about it? And luckily that didn't happen. And it's, you know, people knew that it was good because we knew in making it, it was like, this is the best thing I've ever worked on, you know, hands down. Um, so it was very rewarding and and the nicest people I've ever worked for. And, uh, you know, but like, again, it was like not another co-edit or anything. I didn't really have any more leverage. And after that experience, I really, I would have followed Susan anywhere, actually. And I was happy to, but I was getting to the point where I was like, okay, I've, I've been back to assisting for two years after editing for one year. 
this isn't exactly the trajectory I was hoping for. And then here's that word again, Zach. I got lucky. No. Um, I stayed in touch. I, I'm joking. I, I stayed in touch with the showrunner from Star um, over over the the years, you know, when I wasn't editing anymore. I just wanted to make sure stayed on her mind enough, let her know I still exist, I'm alive. And I had read in the trades that she had a show that was going, uh, that, that got greenlit, that she had created. So I sent her my congratulations. I did my my warm outreach uh, when that came out and then followed up, you know, just letting her know, hey, by the way, like I would die to work with you in a heartbeat. I would, I would absolutely just love, love, love to work with you again, which is true and sincere. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it worked out beautifully that it was the same post producer from Star who was going to that. And we had, you know, tried to find other projects to work on together. And she just mentioned my name to her and we had a meeting and it wasn't, I thought it was going to be an interview and it wasn't, it was just, you know, casual meeting. Let's have catch up. What have you been up to? Oh, I worked on this show with Gene Smart, you know, and this other stuff. And, and uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, enjoying being a dad and whatever. She was like, so, okay, great. I mean, uh, did you read the script? Do you like it? Do you want it? Do you want to do the job? Do you want it? And I was like, uh-huh. Yeah. And she was like, <laughs> cool. Okay, let's do it. And that was it. And then I was back in the editing chair. Um, and what show was that for? That was for Our Kind of People, which was unfortunately just a one season short-lived show for Fox. Uh, but, you know, another great experience. And and working with her again was was lovely. And, uh, you know, it was my same star post team. And it was very like it felt like being very much at home in a safe space. So getting back into the editing chair, uh, you know, almost like a nice soft landing. Well, then again, it was a very challenging show but at least i was surrounded by the right people and felt uh, this was going to be a, a good experience and that went well and then the next thing i did was wu-tang and i've been cutting since then so it's yeah been okay. the, i think i think we might go a little bit more in yeah, that little one yada, sentence yada, i think a little the, the, yeah yeah you you yada yada the best part um <laughs> as, a, as a side note you haven't mentioned the name i'm assuming that you're talking about wendy calhoun yes no, I know Wendy, but um, what was Wendy's connection? She was the she created our kind of people. She may not have been the showrunner, oh, but oh, the she writer, was an executive. Yeah, she was an executive producer, yes. uh, writer on Empire. I don't know if she was involved with Star or not, but I know that she was the original uh, creator yes. or developer of our kind of people. Yes, correct. So she developed it, and uh, with with Karen Gist, who was, who yes, was the showrunner. Exactly. So yeah. the the the, the, re the only reason I bring that up, uh, well, two reasons. One is shameless self promotion. I have one of my favorite podcast interviews is with Wendy Calhoun talking about her journey breaking into the industry, how she became a staff writer, then an executive producer, then a showrunner. Uh, the other reason is just to highlight how insanely small this industry is. Wendy gave my gave me my very first editing job. No way. Right, right out of college. So I know I've known Wendy longer than pretty much anybody in this entire industry. Um, and it just it shows how small this universe is. Because I mean, the what well, what is the likelihood that you know some random guy from Canada that goes to Singapore to film school <laughs> that now comes to LA 
uh, can have that kind of a connection, the same or similar similar connection that I have to somebody. And I just say that to emphasize something that you mentioned earlier, how important the people you surround yourself with is to the quality and direction of your career. Uh, and Wendy is just she's one of the, the best human beings and nicest people I've ever met. So I, I was hoping that you were talk, talking about Wendy and there's, you know, connection, but you were uh, you were talking about Karen. Um, but no, but the fact that we have that connection just is incredible. But it also to me, like I, I take that as a testament to and I think everybody who listens to your podcast can understand is that um yeah, you just you never know who you meet is going to be a real uh, change in your life. There's I I, I, I want to say it's a coincidence, but the fact that you and I both have shared such a similar journey and experience, I think, is is also a testament to what most listeners probably tune in for, which is like hard work and, you know, opportunity. <laughs> that's when you get what lucky, cre- right? That's that's what that's what creates everything. Um So, yeah, I mean, that's what an amazing coincidence. Yeah. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So, uh, so we're going to go back to where you yada yada the best part, because mm-hmm. um, really the whole reason you're here is to talk about that very small gap where you went from I was on our kind of people to oh now I'm w- working on both Wu Tang and Bel Air and they're airing at the same time and you yeah. know I'm Mister Podcast A list guest on all the major <laughs> editing shows. Um, so we're going to dig into where you yada yada the best part. Of course, uh, my understanding is, and you can uh, correct me on the timeline, but I believe this is right around the time that you just magically floated into my community, is it not? It is. And I think that is also not a coincidence of how I got the job. Zach, I've told you this in person, but I will say it here so that everyone knows, is that I firmly believe I would not have gotten the job on Wu-Tang had I not joined your community. And I mean, there were other factors that that led to it, but honestly, uh, I'll I'll explain it in my story, but I think um, at least the interview part uh, I, I, I got there because thanks in large part, thanks to you. 
and one of your your uh, podcast guests and and students, Chris Kavanaugh. So, you know, yeah, I joined your, your community, I think in January, it was January, 2022, I believe around then it was right after I finished our kind of people. And exactly. I was looking for my next phase. I think I, we may have already known that the show got canceled at that point. So it was like, okay, I need to figure out what I'm going to do next. And it just seemed like the perfect time to finally join this program that I had known about for years that could help me just like map out my career and map out, you know, some kind of uh, a plan. Um, and it was far beyond that. I mean, I, th- I think I joined your program, like you said, just to kind of, you know, get some resources, meet some people. Uh, what I didn't expect was that it would be so concretely useful, giving me step-by-step guides of how to take those next steps and what to do and how to succeed in all of these steps. And so one of the main things that I focused on was, I mean, of course, cold outreach and trying to, you know, expand my network was a big thing that was very helpful through the community. But uh, the main thing was when, once I started um, interviewing, so after our kind of people, I hired an agent who um, I had met years before and didn't feel like I was ready Um, but at that point I felt like, okay, you know, I I know they're not going to get me a job, but they're maybe going to help me get into the room. And I needed that. So, you know, that was, that was the, the first step. And right away when, when hiring this agent, she started saying, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try to put you for interviews. And it just kind of dawned on me. It was like, I haven't had to interview for a long time. Like I've known everybody, our kind of people happen very organically. I didn't really have to prepare and so that was, I guess, the next thing I was like, okay, let me just like look in the optimized community, see, you know, if there's any resources about interviewing. And I had discovered you had built basically a mock interview course in your Advance Yourself program, where you had used one of your students as a case study, Chris Kavanaugh, who was in a similar position going from, you know, being a, an additional or co-editor uh, to actually getting a spot um, on on the show he was working on as an editor, and just wanted to prepare for this interview to know like how to really nail it and convince them that he could do the job. And it was just like everything you could ever possibly need to know of how to prepare for an interview was just like downloading into my brain, just like bullet point after bullet point of the buzzwords to use and how to like sell yourself, how to pitch yourself without it seeming cringy. You know, it just it's like basically list what you know you can offer and what you know your take is on the show and what whatever specifics you can bring about the job. And but you know, very bullet point based, you know, not randomly talking the way I may be sounding now. It was very, you know, clear. Okay, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say this. Anyway, I just took so many notes from that experience and and really felt like if I just do exactly what Chris is doing to prepare for his interview, I'm pretty confident I'm just going to nail it. And and the lesson, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of gilding the lily here. The, the, the lesson, I think the main thing was trying to focus in on how you can provide value and basically answering the question of, you know, how, how, how can you help me as the employer? You know, you want to, as the, as the interviewee, I wanted to, basically answer questions before he even needed to answer them. 
to basically tell him how I can solve the problems that I know he's going to run into in the show before he even asks me about those concerns, you know, addressing his concerns before he even asked them. And so luckily, you know, for Wu-Tang, it was, um, it was season three. So I knew, okay, I've got a couple of seasons. I can try to get some intel as far as what uh, challenges they've run into. Um, let me backtrack a little bit. Though. So how I ended up getting the interview to begin with was, uh, again, like a lot of the cold outreach work. Um, I looked at who had cut the show and turned out I knew one of the editors already, Adrian McNally. She, she, she and I had been in the trenches together as, as assistant editors on a pilot. I had come in to kind of help her out. And so she always thanked me for that. She always put me on, on this position of like, you saved me. As if, like, from on my end, I was like, you gave me a job and I, you know, you gave me this amazing relationship with you and all that. But she always really appreciated that I had come in and, and helped her out. And so uh, when I when I spoke to her about my passion for Wu-Tang and how I would, like, dream of working on that show, she said, you know what, I can't go back to season three and I'm so sad, but I just can't make it. So I know there's going to be a spot. Send me your resume. When she said this to me, I happened to be wearing a Wu-Tang t-shirt that day. And so I, I sent her the resume, I took a selfie and I sent that to her and I was like, this is amazing happenstance, I'm wearing this t-shirt. She was like, I just sent this picture to the showrunner, by the way. So now he knows what you look like and he knows you're a fan and now your resume is, you know, top of the pile. And I was like, oh my goodness. Okay, so that's number one, right? Network, connect, be nice to people, work hard for everyone you work for because you never know years later, there she's an editor now and she's in this position to help me and there you go, she was a huge, huge part of me getting in the in the mix. And then when I told my agent about this, she says, oh, I know the post producer really well. So I'm just going to call her right now and tell her to try to hire my client. Uh, so, you know, we were able to hit them on, on multiple angles. And I think that was that combination was how I was able to get the call for an interview. But, you know, like we've talked about many times, you can get the interview. That's that's the arguably the easier part it's it's once you're in the room how can you convince these people that you can do it that you're the right fit and wu-tang was arguably the hardest interview i've ever had the showrunner really grilled me he asked me about hip-hop about what music i was listening to when i was growing up he asked me about my connection to wu-tang he asked specific wu-tang questions to make sure i actually wasn't faking that i liked them that you know i actually knew what i was talking about and uh you know i had to, been preparing. I, I read Riz's books before this interview happened. I had taken copious notes about all these like little intricate stories. And I knew this the show really well. So all of these things were really crucial in going into this interview. I had actually watched the show. He grilled me about that too. He asked me a lot of specific questions. You know, what was your favorite episode? And you know, what 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 stories did you like the most? What did you connect with the most? What do you think you can bring to the table in season three and so on? And I had already kind of had questions prepared. Like, well, you know, season two ended here. And I assume season three, you know, season two ends right where they released their first album. So I knew, okay, season three, I guess, is going to be about now they're famous and now the the struggles with that. And what's what's that going to be like? Is it going to be the five-year plan? Which is something Riza mentions in his book when he made a deal with all the members. He said, give me your life for five years. And, you know, had them all sign a contract that he basically owned them for five years and then they could do whatever they want. And so 
that was exactly what the season was going to be about. It was like, yep, yeah, we're going to follow from Wu, uh, 36 Chambers until Wu-Tang Forever. That journey of these guys basically growing into their own, finding so- solo careers, not having those solo careers, and all this stuff that happened. So, yeah, like all of this preparation allowed me to go into the interview with confidence that at, at the very least I understood the content that we were going to be talking about and the style. And I understood uh, the th- why I had a lot of notes about the things I liked about certain episodes. They had animation sequences. They had homages to certain movies. And I could comment on those things. And I'm a huge cinephile. So I was really able to dig deep into like the references that I picked up on these obscure movies and all that stuff was helpful. Um to, to know in advance, you know, going into this interview. But again, all of this, I think, was thanks to like listening to Chris Kavanaugh's whole spiel and and not not just him. I mean, of course, like a lot of those sessions, it was three, two hour sessions, I think. And you would be playing the interviewer and you would ask these hardball questions and these. Oh, I, really, I grilled the hell out of him. You grilled the hell out of him. And so I just assumed after watching that, that's like, that's what the interview is going to be like. And so it was great because most interviews actually haven't been that hard, but that one was the Wu-Tang one was. And so it didn't throw me off, you know, where I think it would have had I not had that experience watching you and Chris go through every possible scenario that could go in this interview. Where could you flub it? Where, how could you answer this thing better? And you guys did the same kind of interview multiple times. And I saw Chris pro, uh, progress through his answers, how he would answer them, what specific details he would mention in them. And, and, but also like the brevity of the answers and, and the focus. And, and especially everything seemed to be linked to an opportunity to provide value in the answer. So sort of like, if he's asking about this episode, well, I can talk about that. And I can also say, you know, this is how inspired I got. And, you know, I did this short film a while ago that had music. And this is what I did for that to solve this problem. And I knew also speaking to Adrian, and I think uh, I had spoken to Debbie, um, you know, one of your other members of our community uh, who had worked on the show as well. Um, in my research, I was asking a bunch of questions to editors and, and that was, you know, one of the things I asked is like, what were the challenges? What were the things that they didn't like that, that didn't work out well? And having an understanding of some of the challenges with certain cast members was really helpful because I could just naturally weave that into my answers about any challenges I've had that I, or here, well, give me an example of how you solved a, a problem on a show. I think that might've been a, an actual question he asked me. And so I just jumped into, you know, well, there was this one time where we had a lot of actors who couldn't really act or, you know, on Star, we had a lot of rappers who are not actors, but they would come onto the show because it was a music show. And we would have to shape around their performances a lot because they would ad lib or they wouldn't really stick to their lines or they didn't really know how to stay in character. (laughs) They would just sort of go off and be themselves for a moment in the middle of a take. And all these things, you know, and so I just knew how to like shape around a performance without losing the momentum of the storytelling. And I could just see his eyes light up because he was, you are, you are literally saying exactly what I'm worried about right now. And that was a light bulb moment I could see in his mind of like, okay, okay, maybe this is a good fit, you know? So knowing what challenges they are going to be dealing with, if you can naturally weave it in without 
saying that you already know that, I think is a huge win when you're in an interview setting. And that, yeah. that I think was like the, the clincher for me. Yeah, well, you, you, de- you definitely have overcome yada yadaing the best part. Tons and tons of amazing details in there. I'm going to come back and uh, do what I do best, which is summarize and bullet point it. Um, Because there's a lot of really good strategies that I have in that like four or five, six plus hour case study uh, that I did with Chris Cavanaugh. And as a side note, more shameless self-promotion, also have a full length interview with Chris Cavanaugh because you may not know this, but Chris is literally the very first student of this program. And in being the very first student in this program, he ended up being my assistant editor on Cobra Kai for two seasons because similar to you, really proved himself. And that even though he was he was on the editor path, he knew that being an assistant editor, with, which for him, probably the best fit based on lifestyle needs and the, the areas of the industry that he wanted to learn. Um, so I think that he's the perfect uh, analog for where you were in your journey. But if I'm going to summarize this down to the simplest version of all this is great, Mark, but what what did I what did you actually do to make this interview so successful? And I want to I want to break it down to its component parts. The first of which, and I remember you and I had a couple of uh, hot seats while we were preparing you for this interview. And the first one was what I told you, what I tell so many of my other students, is that you have to shift your mindset, realizing this isn't about you. We think that we go into the interview and it's, here's why I'm the best candidate. Here are my qualifications and why you should pay attention to me and why you should pick me. And as you learned, and as we talked about, when you're at the beginning of your career, even at the beginning of the stage of your career, your basic skills and qualifications are important. But you knew going into the room at uh, Wu-Tang, you were up against a whole bunch of other editors that met all of the same qualifications that you did, and you had to differentiate yourself. And the way to differentiate yourself is to make it clear that it's not about me and I'm not selling myself. It's I'm presenting myself as the solution to your problems. So what you and I workshop multiple times was crawling into the brain of the showrunner. What keeps this person up at night? One of the things you identified is we've got a lot of non-professional actors and I need somebody that understands that's a challenge and they can shape their performance. So it doesn't surprise me that when you zero it in on that, as opposed to, well, you know, I've worked on shows like Star and our kind of people and I've done network stuff and I'm really good at what I do and I meet my deadlines and I'm good at taking notes. It was instead, I'm going to crawl inside your brain and I'm just going to twist that knife that keeps you up at night. And I'm going to tell you why you don't need to worry about that problem if I'm on your team. All right. Because ultimately, the other thing I want to make sure that you and just about anybody else needs to address is the elephant in the room. You had an elephant in the room, which was, I don't really have a lot of experience, and this is a pretty high-profile show, so why are we even talking today? And that was another area that by identifying these challenges and taking all this other experience that you had, in, I would guess that even the documentary experience and all the music experience was hugely valuable. And what I have found is that the better we are at extracting all of the parts of our story, whether it's our past work experience, our transferable skills, just our interests and our passions and our hobbies, if you had all the qualifications that you did, but you had never heard of Wu-Tang, probably wouldn't have gotten the job. So if we take those areas, we've got work experience, we've got transferable skills, we have passions and interests, and we have character traits. And for you, obviously, the one that floats to the top of the page is hardworking and will do whatever it takes. You take those four different Venn diagrams and you look at the intersection of all four of those in the middle. Is there anybody else that's a better fit to solve the problems on Wu-Tang than you? I would argue no, 
And that was the story that you told. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the story I told myself and tried to to convey. And yeah, luckily it worked out. But yes, I mean, I, I think that that was the key component is taking myself out of that equation. Because ultimately, and even I think I knew at this point in my career that there are lots of other people out there who could do this job and arguably better or, or you know, on paper would prove themselves to be better. Um, but I also knew I really wanted this so bad, more than anything I've ever wanted, because I am such a massive Wu-Tang fan, you know, since I was like 11 years old. And that was actually something I was able to bring to the to the interview in the beginning when he said, like, so, you know, what's your relationship to Wu-Tang? I made it very clear, you know, this isn't just like something I got into recently. No, like I am a lifelong fan, similar to how this was my Cobra Kai, you know, this was my Karate Kid moment. And we talked about that a lot because it's almost like, okay, you got to temper yourself. You got to make, make sure you're not going to geek out too hard, but you do want to make it clear. Like, I'm not just here because I'm, I, I'm a fan of your show or I, it sounds cool. It's like, no, this is, I am meant to be here with you doing this. So I, I certainly wanted to make that part clear, but then beyond that, that was sort of the me part of it. And beyond that, I really did want to make sure I was just, available to his needs and their needs and whatever it is that that they were struggling with that I knew confidently I could solve those problems for them. It's absolutely the, the number one thing for any interview I go into now is I just think, how can I help you? And, you know, will we be a good fit to each other for this? Because it's a two-way street, but ultimately it's your show. And I just have to come here to try to help you get to your, your end game. Mm -hmm. Well, as I'm sure you've heard me say in that, whether it's a job interview prep or anybody put together a resume, getting ready for any kind of a meeting, whatever it might be, um, I say callously and very honestly that nobody cares about your hopes and dreams. Does the showrunner of Wu-Tang care about your hopes and dreams as an editor? Not nope. really. I don't know this person. I'm not making any judgment about them personally. They don't care about your hopes and dreams. What they care about are their hopes and dreams. They have a vision and they have problems and obstacles that are stopping them from their vision. So it's their hero's journey. You are the guide. You are the mentor. And as soon as people realize that mindset shift, the job interview game changes. But it's a hard one because we're told you got to brand yourself and you got to pitch yourself and you got to sell yourself and you got to be the best candidate. And it's a zero sum game and there's only so many opportunities and you just got to claw and scrape and step over people and you got to make sure that people recognize you. And I just don't believe any of that has to be true. Uh, and you, sir, are proof positive that it doesn't have to be. And you ended up landing a dream gig by simply being the solution to somebody's problems. So having said all of that, I want to wrap it up with one final question. And I'm pretty sure I already know the answer. And I'm pretty sure the other listeners can surmise what the answer might be. But I think it's still very valuable for anybody that is in that similar crossroads of, I know where I want to go, but should I go the assistant route in whatever craft it is? Or should I just learn the craft and do the craft? Mm -hmm. So if we put you in a time machine, and you are going to go back to talk to you know a younger, less wise, less experienced Mark. And he's debating, do I really want to go the assistant route or do I just want to cut? Knowing what you know now, how would you advise yourself? I wouldn't change anything about my journey, but that's my journey. You know, so I can't I can't say it's a blanket statement. I definitely did the right thing and everyone should follow that path. But I know for me at that point in my life, I had so much to learn and I, I'm 
I feel confident that I wouldn't have reached my dream job as quickly had I just stayed in in editing and not had the assistant experience because what I learned from other editors who had decades of experience combined, right? Um, I just I don't I don't know how else I would have learned those things. And I'm not just talking about like editing skills. I think you can learn a lot from videos and books and all all that sort of stuff. It's especially the etiquette, the politics, the working in the room with various personalities, the expectations at different levels and different stages of the process. There's so many things, these little nuances that even if you asked an editor who was willing to teach you, they might not even think about that stuff. It's just what happens because it's it's different every time. And I think um, that is a huge part of my journey of of staying humble and and making sure that I always have more to learn. So I wouldn't change my path at all. But I, I do want to just make it clear. It's not like that's a one size fits all. Because I have seen a lot of uh, editors who just stayed editing and they've also had their own you know, uh, fortuitous opportunities, uh, if you will. So it, it really depends on the path. I think the main thing that um, the main takeaway in either path that you choose is just all, uh, do your best to remain positive and and kind to everyone that you meet, because you really don't know if that post PA is going to end up being a post producer in five years and could be in a position to hire you. I think that's number one. Uh, you know, put your ego aside. It's not your project. You're working for other people and you you need to understand that you are a problem solver and not the filmmaker. Um, but that being said, I mean, I think um, there's tremendous value in both tracks and I, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm very happy with the way things have gone. Well, I would say that that's a, a very good to-do list to check off each of the boxes so that you can get lucky and become an overnight success. So here you are, right? Piece of cake. Um, so having said all of that, given how valuable the networking process has been for you and the process of building relationships, uh, for those that are listening today that are inspired, where can they learn more about you and how can they connect? So you can always connect with me on social media. I try to, uh, be as active as I can. Uh, I, I even check my LinkedIn, which many of us in our industry don't, but I do. LinkedIn, I do try. I'll, I'll put a, I'll put a, a link in the show notes to what LinkedIn is. Cause exactly. most people in our industry, they, they avoid it like the plague. Yeah. But you know what? That's funny. When I first came to LA, um, even before I moved here, that's actually how I connected with a few, uh, assistant editors. So you never really know who uses what service. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good idea to, broaden as many of your your outlets as possible. So I, I try to keep LinkedIn up and running because once in a while, there are people that uh, do contact me that way. So I, I try to check that. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Instagram. My my uh, Instagram and Twitter accounts are at Flamouse, F-L-A-M-O-U-S-S-E. And uh, other than that, you can check my website, which is in the process of being built, markwilcher.com and my IMDb. Nice. Uh, well, my guess is we could do an entire part two about the origin of your Twitter and Instagram handles <laughs> alone. So, but we, we won't go there today. Um, uh, but Mark, it has been a tremendous pleasure getting to know you better and being a, a very small part of this journey and everything that you've accomplished. 
Uh, it's been great working with you and looking forward to seeing what comes next. So having said that, really appreciate your time and your expertise today and uh, very happy that you could be here to inspire my audience. So thank you. Well, thank you, Zach. And uh, you're, you're much bigger than just a little part of my journey. So thank you for everything. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.